This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal, and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information about our work or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org and click the Donate button. The Center, the Center for Cyber Ethics <laughs> is happy to be a sponsor of the Cybertraps podcast, the Center for Cyberethics is an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. And Jethro, we can now officially announce that the Center for Cyberethics is an IRS recognized 501c3 charitable organization. So, all of your donations are tax deductible. And let me ask you a question, Fred. Have you ever been excited to get an envelope in your mail from the IRS? <laughs> Neither have that would I. Be a big fat no. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jethro, that is a great piece of news to start off. What I want to remind listeners is our second calendar year of the Cybertraps podcast, which I'm also very excited about. And it is the year in which I think. One of our two hosts will be releasing his next book. Uh, yes, that is right. My next book, How to Be a Transformative Principal, is coming out at the end of the first quarter, so March, April timeframe, which is uh, 
pretty exciting. And I, I actually almost completely rewrote the book over Christmas break. Um, and I got the edits back and then I had a developmental editor who helped me work through some things and I was just missing the mark. And now it's done. It's in my editor's hands and we're ready to go. So hopefully that'll, that'll go smoothly. Oh, that's fantastic. And we'll also base a show around that, I think, later on in the spring and either have you walk us through it or we'll get some, uh, oh, I don't know, reviewer slash critic to come yeah, in. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the thing that's, that's great is that I'm starting a, a new coaching program to go along with that. So um, called How to Be a Transformative Principal. And uh, in in our master's programs to become a principal, there's a ton of stuff they don't talk about. And namely one of the things we're going to talk about today, which they, they just don't, you can't be prepared for every eventuality that's going to come up as a principal, right? So you need to have frameworks and a method for making decisions that are going to be effective. And that's really what I dive into in that coaching program and in that, um, and in the book. So I'm really excited about it. It's, it's pretty cool. And it, it always feels good to get a project done. I know we've talked about it and I've finished the first draft, but like I said, I need mm-hmm. to rewrite a bunch of it as you know, how that goes. <sighs> Painful. <laughs> but we, we, we will dive into this in a lot more detail, but I think one trailer I would offer you or, or ask you to provide us more accurately is when you're talking about the word transformative, where's the transformation? Is it in the principal and his or her uh, delivery of administrative services, or is it in the school, or is it in the kids? Well, this is the beauty of it, is that transformation, instead of change or improvement or whatever the case may be, requires a transformation in all of those things. And so that is a key aspect of it. And one analogy that I like to use is in order to fulfill the measure of our creation or to do what we're here on earth to do or to be the best that we possibly can be, we need to transform from wherever we're at into that thing. And to deny that, to not do that for ourselves, for our schools, for our teachers, for our students, for any of us to not make that transformation is like a butterfly saying, or a caterpillar saying, I don't want to be a butterfly. I want to stay a caterpillar forever. It just doesn't make <laughs> I'm, any I'm sense. I'm just done. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we need to go through that process in order to transform ourselves, but then also transform our environment and transform the people that we're working with. And I think that that's a really apt description because what's on the other side is way better than being a slow, stinky caterpillar that can only crawl on trees. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so we've now pissed off the caterpillar segment of our <laughs> listening audience, but that, that's totally cool. I look forward to reading it. I look forward to, I think, having a really good in-depth conversation about it in a few months. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Appreciate cool. the time taken to talk about that. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. So let's get into All our right. topic today, which is so frustrating to deal with, which it is really, copycat threats. It really is. And, and this is something... Uh, for those of us who, have, uh, for those of you who have been listening recently, is an uh, it's a phenomenon that occurs periodically, but it hit a fever pitch following the Oxford High School shooting in Michigan uh, by the young man named Ethan Crumley. And what we're going to be talking about today is the phenomenon of schools receiving copycat threats of violence anytime some kind of tragedy occurs. 
And we're gonna talk a little bit about how those threats gets transmitted, what the implications are, how you sift through them in terms of what's real, what's credible, what's not, um, and, and what the impact is on the school community, on the parents, on the kids and so forth. And I had already been studying this a little bit, but my sister, uh, my sister Kate Van Sleet, who is a librarian and the mother of three young girls, um, was really, really upset one morning right after the shooting. And she tweeted out that it's a tragedy and a national failure that the police have to be positioned outside my kid's school today because of a TikTok challenge threat. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm not going to pick on my sister unnecessarily because <laughs> she's not here to trash talk me in return. But the thing that I would say is, or the question I guess I would throw right at you, Jethro, is, is do we view this as a national failure? Is this a national issue? Or is this a more localized thing in terms of the ways in which schools should respond? So that's number one. And then the question is, do we, is it, deserved to blame TikTok. And, and I think that's one of the things we really should unpack because as you know, I take no backseat to anyone in blaming TikTok for things it actually doesn't police, but this may not be one of them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to use the word failure because whose failure is it? And who should we, who should we point the finger at when we say it's a national failure? What, so that's, to me, that's the big question is I, I don't feel comfortable saying it's a national failure um, and because really this is going to be super controversial, but <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't go say ahead. It. Make uh, some news. <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. We, we told families, we told kids that school does not matter, that it's totally fake and made up when we shut everything down because of the coronavirus. So now as these things are happening, kids already know, that we've communicated that it doesn't matter, that it's not as important as a, a public health issue. <laughs> so that's controversial, right? Well, I, and I'll, I'll give you my, my response, but finish your thought. So we've, we've said school doesn't matter. So now kids are trying to figure out ways that they can continue to get out of school because it's compliance-based, it's all standardized, it's not individualized to them. And so what's the right. point of them going? The reason they want to be at school is to hang out with their friends. And if they can, as many kids across the country did, school was canceled. So they went and hung out with their friends all day anyway. So it's not like they were actually every single student was staying in their home and not associating with anybody else. They were still going out and doing things and hanging out and all that kind of stuff. So that's what they want to be doing. And and so when when they have opportunities to do that and they don't think of the repercussions of what they could be saying and doing, which is a very mm. teenager thing to do, right? <laughs> Their brains are, are not fully developed yet. Um, no, that's for sure. It, you can understand to a certain extent why they would try to do things to get an extra day of Christmas break because kids mm. have been doing that kind of stuff for years and not to mention schools are places for pranks because it is set up to be a perfect receptacle for prank type actions. And That's so principal who would know. Yes, I would. <laughs> so, you know, I, I hesitate to call it a national failure, but it is definitely a major problem. And I do want to dissect it a little bit deeper than that. Well, that makes sense. I think 
so my initial response to that would be that I, I think we're going to need, you know, from a sociological point of view, we're going to need to do a fair amount of study and analysis on a whole bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. right, arising out of how we responded to the pandemic and what can be learned in, if and when this happens again, because the odds are good that, you know, it will, uh, just given current, you know, social interaction and global travel and all the rest of that. I, I think I would disagree a little bit, you know, again, to give my sister Kate some credit here. I mean, whether or not we're going to, you know, take apart her words. I think she was a fair, her response to the schools being shut was relatively, I think, typical in the sense that she supervised her kids really carefully. They took part in online classes. I think the takeaway for them was that school still did matter. It mattered enough that they had to learn how to use these new technologies, how to interact in different ways. Now, her kids are younger, to be fair, and maybe the message was different if you were in, you know, sophomore, junior, senior mm-hmm. year of high school, because there it's a little bit harder to constrain what kids are doing. But I will be curious to see if there's any study done about the level of attendance as best as we could establish for kids in online environments versus real world, you know, in-person environments. So there's that. And I don't think we should be too hasty to over or to undervalue the lesson for kids that there may be some public health crisis that requires us to change our behavior. Now we have to look at the costs of doing that, of course. And that's one of the debates that will be ongoing. I mean, look at, look at the environment now. We've got this incredibly fast-spreading variant of the virus, and yet there's a huge push to keep schools open for a lot of the reasons you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but that argument, I would say, is only carrying the day because, as far as we can tell, the health impact is lower than alpha, delta, whatever. If the, if the health outcomes were as bad as those, you know, as a parent, I'm not sure I'd be really pushing my kids back into school. So the last thought I'll throw out there is, you know, yeah, kids always love the idea of stretching out vacation. I can't tell you how happy I was as a kid, you know, pre-global warming, when we would have snow days, (laughs) you know, at the end of vacation, and you always got those couple of bonus days. It was great. But, you know, I, I don't think I ever would have thought to go so far as to call you know, and of course, having to look up the phone number in a phone book for all these <laughs> holsters out there. Um, but I, that I would go so far as to call the school and threaten to like blow up the chem lab or something like that. So I think that we can have a good conversation about where that love, where that social change has come from, you know, that that would be something kids would consider doing. Well, and this is where I want to address that piece that kids have been doing this for years so Mm -hmm. this is kids calling themselves out sick pretending to be their parents is the basis of this same exact thing i do not know what you're talking about (laughs) right (laughs) so uh so now some schools have text messaging excusals for kids which you know just completely throws that makes that so much easier let me me just give you a laugh because one of my other sisters my other sister i have two so my other sister was shocked to learn when she was in middle school that her handwriting does not look like my mother's. 
Yes. <laughs> she was trying to get out of gym class. And um, yeah, that's a famous family story. <laughs> yeah, that is hilarious. So the idea that kids want to get out of school is as old as school itself. So right. the thing that has changed is that the the seriousness of this and the escalation right. of fear related to this is what is really concerning. So if you want to try to cancel school and say there's a bomb in the school, which is something that kids have done in the past and uh, kids have threatened to blow up schools before. And I've experienced all of these as a principal myself. So these, these threats are not, they're not that novel. The difference uh -huh. is the, the scale at which it's happening, which is people all over the country on December 17th were, uh, were having kids call out saying they're not coming to school because they're afraid. Even here, uh, my daughter's middle school, there was talk about something like that. School still happened. We still sent her to school. Um, but there wasn't, but because it was a serious enough threat and because that thing happens of school shootings happens enough that we think now maybe it can happen here, that has mm -hmm. been the thing that has made it so that this is such a bigger deal. And to your sister's point, having the police parked outside the school is a show of support and we're here to protect your kids. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I can totally see where your sister's coming from with that comment that, right. that we feel the need to even have them there on that specific day for that specific reason that shouldn't, we shouldn't have to do that. We should be partnering right. and welcoming them and have a great relationship not calling them in because we're afraid that somebody might come do something that day. No, that's absolutely true. And, and, and I think that, you know, she would completely agree that, you know, there's such an important role for law enforcement to play in protecting mm -hmm. schools and making sure people feel safe. I don't think she would see that as the failure per se. I think what she would probably say, and we really, I should get her on here at some point to talk about this, but what I think she would say is that the national failure lies in the fact that we've gotten to a place in our social development where it does feel like it's possible that mm -hmm. one or more of these copycat threats could be true because of the fact that we've seen it happen and there's so many more guns every single year. And this is not a show to deal with the gun debate whatsoever, but I think you know, in terms of how schools respond and how you had to respond, Jethro, as a principal, you had to take it seriously because it was not unimaginable mm -hmm. that what was being threatened could happen. Yeah, that's very much the truth. And yeah. you have to take these kinds of threats seriously because the, the repercussions, if you don't take them seriously, is a huge issue. And... That's yeah. You just can't not deal with it. Well, let, let me ask you if, you if let's just take a second, because you've got the practical experience on this. I mean, in my years on the school board, I don't recall us having to deal with it. And of course, we would only have been informed later, you know, after it was dealt with. So that that's a different situation altogether. But let you become aware of something. Is there is that is there a little tingle of fear inevitably? when you see those words, I mean, just as a natural human reaction. And yeah. then what do you do? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's always a an awareness of this could actually happen, which is very frightening. Um, and it's different depending on the circumstances. When it's been a student that I know, that I know doesn't have access or capability to do it, it's not scary. It's more of an issue of what's going on with that kid that's making them think that this is okay to do. And, and that's what makes me so concerned about this latest TikTok threat is that it is, it, it's, it's, it's so much more widespread. So if it is a specific student that we've been working with and we know them and we know what they're thinking and we know that this isn't going to happen, then that's different. When it is someone, what's really scary is when it's someone who you have no idea who the person is who's making the threat and you have no idea whether or not it could be true. That mm-hmm. is what is really scary. So my, in my, the first school where I was, where I was an administrator, assistant principal, we had a situation in the community where there's a drug deal gone bad and um, somebody said oh. they saw the person heading towards our school and it could have been one of the parents of our students and we had to, to shut down the school. But the thing is, all these kids are coming to school at eight o'clock in the morning. And so right. how do we shut down the school and keep all these kids out? And we also, right. how do we right. tell parents they can't come in with their kids when we're locking the doors and, and we just leave the parents outside when this person, the police think are coming towards our school? Like, Crazy. what do you do? Yeah. So we could have very easily in that situation, let that person with the weapon into our school and because we were letting people in and we didn't know the right thing to do, but we knew that we needed to take care of our students. And so that was our priority is to make sure that they get in the building and are safe. And that if there are any parents, like you don't want a parent to be walking back home after walking their kid and get shot by someone who the police are already looking for, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's no good. Or as they're going to their car, (laughs) the person needs a car. You know, yeah. so we just brought everybody in and just prayed that it wasn't that none of them were the person. And we didn't, you know, they described it as a Hispanic male who was like five feet ten and wearing a black shirt or something like that. The most for our community, the most generic, generic. description that we could possibly right. get. There's no way we could screen all of the Hispanic fathers that were walking their kids to school that day. You know, this it's, it's yeah. just Anyway, that's what scares when you don't know how real right. the threat is. Well, that's actually a great opportunity to highlight for people, I think, one of the most profound both changes and challenges that arises with all of this. And, you know, we certainly have referenced TikTok. Uh, one of the things that we have in the show notes is a very specific statement from the TikTok communication mm-hmm. team right after this wave of copycat threats in which they make it absolutely clear that they scoured their, their platform for these and didn't find any evidence of a challenge per se. But, you know, a lot of this stuff gets out in the media and TikTok's an easy target for yeah. a lot of this. But I think what parents really need to understand, you know, it, both for themselves and also in terms of how they interact with school officials is that these threats can come from anywhere in the world mm-hmm. because of the reach of social media platforms, the reach of email, text messaging, what have you. And that makes that, that evaluation process that you talk about, Jethro, so much more difficult, right? Because it's one thing if you've got a kid in front of you, you, you know the family history, there's been some problems, the kid's got issues to deal with. 
and you can evaluate with that information. But if you're getting a quote-unquote anonymous, and I'll explain the quotes in a second, but a quote-unquote anonymous threat from somewhere on the internet, whether it's Snapchat or Instagram or TikTok or what have you, that tool is taken away from you. Yeah, and and that is what makes it so concerning because you don't know how serious it is. You don't know if it's going to be something that's going to actually come to your door and and you're going to have to deal with it in live and in person. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to do that and it's very frightening to even think about that, but that's something that you you have to think about and you have to be prepared for. And the the other thing I want to say real quick about the the TikTok communications team saying um that that they've looked for threats of violence and haven't found any is that it doesn't even matter if they did or not because the the idea that somebody is out there spreading it um <laughs> it it doesn't even have to be real you know you know the game of telephone and it's even worse with social media because it can move so fast so somebody three towns over could say this is happening we're afraid of this happening at our school today. Their friend who goes to my school is now going to say, this could be happening at my place too, or they could right. misunderstand where that person is. And so the viral nature. Wait a second. Nobody, nobody misunderstands anything. On social <laughs> <Right>. media. <laughs> Sorry. I forgot. What was I thinking? <laughs> You're right. That's, uh, a, I apologize. that's a big fail. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, recognizing that, that, that there's no way to control where this has come from and who's saying what and and to know for sure that it's not one of your students is is what's so frightening. You know, a username of 27 July 85 or whatever could be somebody's user account in your school or in another country and if if it happens to mention your school or somebody in your community says it is from our school, you really have no way to verify that and that's that's where I think the important thing is having that collaboration with social media platforms and schools to be able to identify and diagnose where these things are coming from. And that I do not think is happening right now. See, that's a great segue to my next question for you as, <laughs> as someone, you know, with, with, again, the practical experience that I think is, is valuable. So, you know, for the parents and, and obviously for the untransformed principals who may be listening, <laughs> um, walk Walk us through what your response plan was and, and what, what you think probably it should be these days. So you see a threat. A threat is conveyed to you. Maybe a kid, maybe a teacher sees it. And what do you do? Once you kind of get over that little frisson of like, oh, my God, what do you do? Yeah. So one thing that I would like to do is to have a phone number to call Instagram or TikTok or somebody and say, we just received this information about something happening at our school, and we think it's from this user, and we need to know how credible this is, what information Mm -hmm. can you share with us about this user so that we know. Not in a a punishment, but in a safety-focused way of, this person's, all their geotags are 300 miles away from you, so Mm -hmm. that helps us say, okay, this is probably not a real threat. This is somebody being dumb, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's nothing like that. But that would really help. The, the first thing that I recommend principals do is they get as much information as they possibly can. 
find anybody who who knows or follows this this uh, account to share what they have screenshots um, past experiences or whatever and that that's a really difficult thing to do because you want to overreact but under sensationalize and mm, nice and, phrase yeah so I learned that from Stuart McDonald my superintendent in Kodiak and it it has guided me in many situations you don't want to you don't want to make it bigger by getting on the intercom and saying hey everybody we just had a threat to the school so if you know anything let us know that's not going to be helpful right so you've so the anti-reaction plan yes yeah so you want to make sure you have all the information possible and it would be great to have a collaboration with the social media companies which i think they um they should do as a matter of conscience is to provide support to schools um, because schools need all the help they can get in dealing with this kind of stuff. Um, so you, you try to get as much information as you can. You notify the police and get them involved as soon as possible as well. Often those things need to happen in tandem um, mm-hmm. because when you don't know what's going on and it's so serious, you can't afford to not have support. And where would your, what was your threshold for notifying parents? Because a lot of times parents get upset that they weren't notified soon enough, but you don't want to over-sensationalize. Yeah. So this, how do you make that call? Well, this is really challenging. Um, I I think the parents should be notified as much as possible. Um, but the challenge is, is that you're dealing with a hundred other things in the moment. And mm. to be honest, letting parents know is honestly on the back burner. And mm. You want to notify them and you want them to be aware, but at the same time, you you just can't you can't notify them of everything every time, and that's right. And we should and we should challenge. be clear that we're drawing a distinction here between a threat and an active situation. Right. Yep. And so, if it's a threat, you don't want to notify until you have some information. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want to say. Uh, because we get threats a lot, to be honest. You don't want to say this is what's going on and, and this is what we're dealing with in real time. You want to have it resolved because everybody wants answers at that point. And so you want to have as much information so you know how credible it is and whether it's not. And then the other thing is you can't talk about anything anyway. <laughs> so you can't say this particular student made this particular threat at this particular time because one, the police are investigating and they're not going to let you say that. Um, two, right. you don't want to uh, identify who that student is because you want to respect their privacy, even if they do make a mistake and do something inappropriate. And three, um, you don't necessarily know that that is exactly how it happened. That There could have been other things leading up to it. And, and so you also don't want a parent to come back and say, well, my student told me this kid was saying it two weeks ago. And you're just now telling us. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a really complicated thing that is really challenging. And I personally have failed at that. And it's professionally embarrassing that I didn't get the word out to the staff or to the parents. And then they found out about it from Facebook instead of hearing about <laughs> it from right. me. Which, you right. know, again, just exacerbates that situation and makes it more difficult and more difficult for everybody. And, and that's... And and so in all of that, I think the thing we really want to walk away from this is we want to have grace for everybody involved in this situation, except Mm. the social media companies. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to them, actually. (laughs) Yeah, so having grace, I think, is really important in recognizing there's a lot going on. 
it's tough to know the right thing to do, and it's pretty much impossible to get it right for every single person that might be affected. So right. Well, and and I think that that what I'm hearing you say, and I, I I respond to this, I guess, both as a school board former school board member and as a parent myself, is that so much of the response and reception of the response is built around the trust within the school community. Yes. So if if you and we talk endlessly about this cultivation of a culture of cyber safety. And if, if a school district or a school has successfully done that or has made good progress on that, then hopefully there'll be some understanding of the challenges and difficult choices that administrators face and a willingness to trust that they're using their best judgment in making those decisions, right? And, and I, I think that we, we've also talked about the acceleration of life. And one of the problems with social media, which you just illustrated vis-a-vis Facebook, is the speed with which rumors and information and false information can fly around a community. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, part of my definition of grace, I think, would be the grace of patience and, and understanding. <laughs> you yeah. know, a willingness to not leap into judgment too quickly. And I think that's something we all need to do more of in both our real lives and our online lives. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a situation where with this Oxford High uh, situation in Michigan, where when I saw that the parents were being charged um, or, or were being sought out by the police at first, uh, I thought... That is, to me, that is really unprecedented. And there must be a lot more. And as the days went on, we saw that there was more to that story of why they were mm-hmm. were interested in them. But that that idea of a of a parent being held accountable for their kids' actions um, is is really a a different step than anybody has ever taken before. Because we very very intentionally, in my opinion, in schools, do not hold parents accountable for their kids' mistakes, except when it comes to attendance, especially in the lower grades, because that is on the parents, because they're the ones who are providing transportation, who get kids up, all that. Um, and so we don't do a lot to to punish parents for their kids' misdeeds, but in this situation, when the parents are um, willfully ignorant or encouraging the things mm-hmm. that their kids are doing... Um, that becomes an issue. I think it brings up the issue of whether if parents are giving their kids um, devices and letting them access social media accounts and then they're doing this, I think that that opens the door for those kinds of things to happen in the future because that is on the parents that they're allowing that to happen um, and not monitoring that. And, And I wouldn't say that they need to be held accountable personally. I don't believe that, but I think that they need more education and more awareness of what can happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit more, um, I guess the word would be judgmental <laughs> vis-a-vis some of the parenting choices that get made. And, you know, obviously I've been working on the cyber traps for the young and cyber traps for educators for a decade now. And I right. think it may have jaundiced me a little bit in terms of how I view some of the choices that some parents make. But, you know, I think that, you know, part of it comes down to whether or not people accept this idea just as a general proposition, the parents have a duty to supervise their children mm-hmm. and to be aware of what their children are doing. Um, you know, the the kind of 
large life example is that if you are routinely allowing your 16 year old unlicensed to get in a car and drive it and you give the child the keys, I think you've got some culpability when they sideswipe three cars trying to park, you know, yeah, some yeah. things like that. And, and you are starting to see, or, or there have been a few cases over the past decade of people alleging negligent supervision, which is a civil tort, right? But instances in which parents could be shown to be aware that their child was using their device to bully, uh, to inflict emotional harm in one way or another. And in the most severe cases, the victim ends up committing suicide. And there's a legitimate question. If the parents are aware of that and are not taking reasonable steps to stop it, they probably should share in some of the culpability. Mm -hmm. Criminal culpability is unique. This, This is, as you point out, I think one of the very small handful of cases in which a prosecutor has alleged that a criminal, a crime, resulted from this. So that will be interesting to watch. I think at the very least, as we say in the show notes, that there's enormous potential for these things to be teachable moments Mm -hmm. within a school community. Even, you know, hopefully you get through a wave of copycats. And I think it really has died down because, you know, schools eventually figure people yelling wolf. But I think that as with so many of these things, schools should be using them as an opportunity to educate students about the costs of doing this, the harm that's inflicted, and to encourage parents to engage in the kind of supervision that might cut it down a bit. Yeah, and this is the really challenging piece because we have a responsibility because of um, privacy laws like FERPA to prevent information about what kids are doing from getting out. And that very specifically does include discipline issues as well. So Mm -hmm. we can't go broadcasting that this kid got in trouble for this thing. Um, But we do need to have a better conversation about what it looks like when a student does something like this and how we talk about it as a school community. And that's a situation where we need to do a better job of bringing it up again and saying, Mm -hmm. here's how this went down. Here are our responses. Here's what we do. And as best we can, generalize that, but at the same time, communicate to all the other students, look, this is not okay to do. If you are, right. if you are struggling or hurting or dealing with something or you're angry or whatever it is, making a threat against the school is not a way for you to, um, to get help. But if that's the only thing that gets a response from us, Mm-hmm. then that's another sad state of affairs for where we're at. And, and that's, that's a, a real that's issue. A, that's a great point because we really do need other mechanisms for this cry for help to be yeah. heard than throwing out some threat of, of you know, gun violence or, or bombs or whatever else. And, you know, let's be clear. There are going to be some kids who just do it out of boredom. You know, mm-hmm. because they think that it's it's a form of trolling in a way, which is an unfortunate byproduct of our social media age. But I think, you know, just to close the 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 program on a really cheerful note, <laughs> that one of the things that kids and parents need to understand is how powerful the investigative tools are for law enforcement to figure out where these things come from. 
absolutely there are anonymizing apps and so forth. But if law enforcement is able to tie any of these threats to an IP address, then all bets are off mm-hmm. because that's going to lead to a physical address. It's going to lead to a search of whatever electronic devices are using that IP address. So, you know, dad's trying to do his, you know, remote accounting business and all of a sudden, you know, the feds come in and they take his computer. He's not going to be happy about that. Right. And, you know, I think there's a certain amount of self-interest for parents, wholly aside from any potential civil or criminal liability, just in terms of disruption of their lives. Yeah. It's good to know what your kids are doing with these devices. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because, yeah, the, the feds or, or state, state uh, bureaus of investigation do not care <laughs> when they go in. They're going to take it all and they're going to try and figure out what happens. So, and then, of course, for the kids, they do need to be educated that the range of penalties run from school sanctions, which I'm sure you handed out, to mandatory counseling, yeah. potential criminal proceedings which actually can include jail time, you know, if the threat is serious enough or causes enough disruption. So there are very, very good reasons, as we've constantly said on this show, for parents to pay better attention to what their kids are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and like we've talked about a lot, that supervision is so key and it needs to happen and you need to be aware and pay attention and read between the lines and identify moods, which is tough with moody teenagers, but it's it's vital to do it. You know, you can't, you can't ignore the warning signs um, because the, the, the consequences are too great. They really are. Well, I hope people have found this informative. I, I certainly have every time I get to ask Jethro about what actually goes on in schools. <laughs> it's, it's an informative day. Uh, as we always try to do, we've dumped a bunch of stuff into the show notes, which we'll throw on to the show page on cybertraps.com. Just a reiteration, go to centerforcyberethics.org to support the work that we're doing and will be doing, which we'll talk about. And I think that wraps us up. Anything else? Uh, you know, I just I just want to say, if there are any principals listening and you want to give your feedback, um, is it, reach out to me, uh, jethro at transformativeprinciple.com, and let me know. I'd love to get some other voices and some other ideas of, of what people are doing and how they handled it. Uh, especially last month, that would be great. That That's a great call out. And just to broaden the invitation a little bit, if you'd like to join us yeah. and talk through some of these Double issues, bonus. <laughs> double bonus. We would love to have you on. Uh, let's try and spread the word in practical terms about what other schools can do, what parents can expect from administrators when these things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Excellent. Well, that brings to a conclusion this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and as we explained, the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, and we hope that you'll share the show with your colleagues and friends and reach out to us if you have questions, topic, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you with us, and we look forward to having you join us for our Thursday episode with Paul Shaw. 
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.